Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. everyone and welcome to the history of england episode 325 james and the historians and also to episode 7.1 because this is the start of a new series the early stuarts it covers about 50 episodes from 325 to 368 and takes us from the accession of a new dynasty with james the sixth and firsts the stuarts and to the end of the first two stages of charles's reign his son to 1638 and the start of the trouble which will bring his personal rule to a close and start the countdown to the English Revolution, the British Civil Wars, the Wars of Three Kingdoms, the Wars of Five Kingdoms, call it what you will. James's reign then takes us 18 episodes from 325 to 343. James rather suffers from being sandwiched in between two of the most celebrated periods in English history, the reign of Good Queen Bess and the English Revolution, so he is more ignored than he really should be. And it's a shame, because he was both extraordinary, interesting, politically astute, and in his court life, really rather wild. From 1603 to 1612, up to episode 332, James is served by one of those exceptional first ministers that the Tudors were so lucky to have by their sides, this one, Robert Cecil, the first Earl of Salisbury. It is a period of relative calm despite the gunpowder plot, although Cecil fails to solve James's money problems largely because the problem was, well, James. Despite the lasting legacy of the King James Bible in that very year, things get rather tougher thereafter for James. The second half of James's 
reign is marked by a scandalous court life, money problems, the growth of a public sphere, the plantations of Ulster, a fractious relationship with Parliament, and the Thirty Years' War in the background. And then, of course, there's his most notorious favourite, the Duke of Buckingham, who also joins his son Charles in the most extraordinary adventure to Spain, which you can hear about in episodes 341 and 342. It's probably also worth noting that with James, I start the At A Gallop series. This was a response to the extra level of detail in the episodes around the Civil Wars, so each At A Gallop episode covers about 10 or so normal episodes and therefore focuses on the big story to help you see the bigger picture or move through quickly through the politics, whatever serves you best. So look out for those on the way. After James dies in episode 343, we have a bit of a pause and look around at some social and cultural stuff. I finally bite the bullet and in three episodes cover Elizabethan and a Jacobean theatre. Then my absolute favourite, two episodes on the transformation of England's buildings in what W.G. Hoskins called the Great Rebuilding. I love those. And also, two episodes looking ahead to the English Revolution. We had a bit of a poll at the time, too late to vote now, but would you have been a royalist, a parliamentarian, or a clubman, I wonder? Charles comes to into his own in episode 350 and we get two stages of his reign done in this series in 21 episodes. Firstly, from 350 to 357 to about 1629, 1625 to 1629, Charles tries to rule in accordance with the ancient constitution alongside Parliament, but Parliament irritates him. So, then, from episode 357 to 368, Charles tries to rule out of accordance with the ancient constitution from 1629 to 1638. This is his so-called personal rule. We hand over to series 8 when the cracks start appearing, fissuring the wall of state all the way down from Scotland. On the way, incidentally, we need to cover England's early colonisation of the Caribbean and North America. So from 364 to 367, we have four episodes on that story. And then we end the series with an Atagallop episode that summarises the whole personal rule, and then it's on to series 8 and the English revolutions. So, that's it then. Back to the main series, and... Well, we've been through a lot together, you and I, recently. Through multiple horrors. Cossack invasions, the murder of hundreds of thousands, wars, deluges, religious conflict and expulsions, the death of millions in Germany, the persecution of witches, I mean, few. Such good news to be able to return to the green and pleasant lands of the North Atlantic archipelago, where the weather is never too hot, never too cold, the rain falls and the flowers bloom, and soft breezes waft you to paradise at the end of the day. To where, with James VI of Scotland becoming the first of England, Ireland and Wales, at last the peoples of the said archipelago could live together in the same blessed peace, mutual love and respect in which they have remained to this very day. I'm being slightly ironic, of course. You won't find a lot of peace and harmony in these pages, let me tell you. This is history we're talking, not Mills and Boone or Michael Bublé. But if we ever do reach that place of peace, harmony and so on, you'll be the first to know. I promise. Anyway, despite my golden rule to never apologise and never explain, some apologies and explanations 
do nonetheless now follow. By the way, on that, I have attributed the never apologise and never explain advice to my grandmother in the past, and a debate on Facebook led me to apologise and explain, which I think is almost Kafka-esque. It was not my granny, whose advice generally was along the don't speak with your mouthful variety, and I was being ironic. I don't really think it's good advice, although there are extreme circumstances where it might be, I guess. Pop suggestions for such circumstances into the post, if you like. Anyway, apologies and explanations. Firstly, if you are members, there will be a deal of duplication, since we are ahead now in the history of Scotland, and so we've spoken already of Jimmy Six. And this first episode would inevitably be about Jimmy's historiography, and the next episode will be about his earlier career in the land of the free, so sorry and all. Secondly, almost I must repeat the same excuses I offered in the history of Scotland. This is that we are heading very close to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Now, just for the moment, there'll be no union, just a dual monarchy. But the lives of the monarchs of England and Scotland will be the same. You might well ask why I do not then go for a history of the British Isles or the Atlantic Archipelago or even Great Britain. The same questions you may have asked back in 1284. If you were asking that question, which possibly you were not, I will give you the same answer as I had before, which is that I specifically embarked on the History of England podcast so many years ago because A. I'm English, a narrow-horizoned parochial hobbit-like creature, the English are my tribe, and English history is my love. B. Histories of Great Britain tend to end up being extremely Anglo-centric, or fearsomely complicated, or they leave too much out. So, each of the nations deserves their own history, in my view. It'll mean some oddnesses, but it's been done before, so I'm sure we'll cope. All of that out of the way, let us turn to James, and let me introduce you not to the Ladybird history of 1066, and all that just yet, though courage may brave, I will not ignore those august speakers of history, but on this occasion we're going to start with a Kentish gentleman whose family had held minor offices in the royal household for some generations, and, just like Henry Higgins, had therefore grown accustomed to her face. In 1617, the latest member of the family, who shall remain nameless but is in fact Anthony Weldon of 22 Acacia Avenue, accompanied his boss King James back to Scotland. The story goes that Mr Weldon was not impressed with the Scots, wrote some thoroughly scurrilous notes, which will be published one day as a perfect description of the people and country of Scotland. It portrayed the Scots as people with foul houses, foul sheets, foul linen, foul dishes and pots. The story goes that this was a letter rewritten secretly by Weldon, then discovered at which point he was fired from the royal household. The story goes that in revenge he then wrote treatises on the court and on the characters of James and his son Charles, which form the most effective hatchet job in the history of hatchet jobs, a reputation which has lived for hundreds of years. I think you will know some of these. 
My favourite one is the one about the size of his tongue, apparently too big for his mouth, so he slobbered. There was also this one, which Weldon suggested probably should be attributed to King Henry IV of France. Insomuch, as a very wise man was wont to say, he believed him the wisest fool in Christendom, meaning him wise in small things, but a fool in weighty matters. Which is quite clever, actually. Wisest fool in Christendom, I'm sure you'll agree. Elsewhere, our Tony Weldon was less subtle. James, apparently, was uncouth, cursed and blasphemed constantly, and get this, fiddled constantly with his codpiece. Honestly, if that did happen to be true, I suspect he's not alone in the history of blokes' personal habits. Just saying. James was painted as a coward who would not go to war for Protestantism, as was his duty. He was extravagant in gifts to his countrymen who swarmed all over him like bees round a honeypot and ruined the finances of plucky little England thereby. And he had sticky legs, so he had to hang on to his courtier's shoulders to keep himself upright, and he drank way too much. Plus he had male favourites, with whom he was way too familiar matron to the level which offended many sexual mores of the 17th century Kentish gent. All of this, it has to be said, made great copy. In fact, if you listen carefully, you can hear the editor at the Sun and the News of the World breathing heavily and fast. Such is their pleasure and delight and professional admiration. So compelling was this copy, that much of the mud has stuck firmly to James's codpiece and been repeated through the ages and taken as gospel by more than one solemn and po-faced historian, including, I might say, the considerably less than po-faced Seller and Yateman. But look, how could they have resisted such potential for comedy? Well, there are a couple of odd things about the story and how it got written. Firstly, the offending treatise wasn't actually published until after his death. Weldon died in 1648, and the work was published in 1650. Also, in actual fact, he continued on happily in the king's employment for six years after the supposed discovery of his notes and enjoyed other marks of royal favour. So the concept of a courtier seeking revenge through the writing therefore seems very questionable. And it might just be that this image that was created owes more to the later historiography of the Stuarts, and rather more to the misfortunes of his son Charles I, under whom, I don't think I am spoiling any plots, by revealing the Stuart dynasty suffers something of a blow. So, it might well be that all of this was written by political satirists seeking to explain why the dynasty had later come to grief, and it would help a lot if James was a loser. Either way, whatever its provenance, it stuck. And part of the reason for its stickiness was the same reason as for all effective political satire. It had more than a kernel of truth to it, and bits of it at least are attested to by other observers, some of them ambassadores, and therefore presumably above tawdry court politics when they reported home. James was 37 when he arrived in Blighty. He was described as a man rather tall than low, well-set, and somewhat plump of ruddy complexion. And, 
with light brown hair and a very thin beard. But he may have had rickets when he was young and always walked rather slowly and uncertainly. His carriage ungainly, his steps erratic and vagabond. He was indeed often seen to lean on his courtier's shoulders and James himself claimed to be of feeble body and that he could not labour long at business. Even his supporter, Francis Bacon, found his accent difficult to deal with and described his speech as swift and cursory and in the full dialect of his country. Plus, the court from which James came was very different to the English court and James's Scottish courtiers would struggle with it too. England was much richer, the court much grander and more formal. The Tudors, after all, had been masters of the public image and not in a limited way. In Scotland, the court was much smaller and more informal. And actually, James had a talent for it. He was friendly, good at the banter, ready and willing to sink a few with his lords and ladies. And it worked a treat. The thing about walking with his hands up on the courtier's shoulder was seen as a mark of royal favour, rather than a sign that he needed a human walking stick or else he'd fall over. And it has to be said that James was an absolute sucker for hunting. He was always at it, drove his ministers bonkers, who often had to trail around after the man to get papers signed and decisions made and all that. So the point I'm making is that he got some exercise and that magic formula that drove my mother's entire medical cabinet. Fresh air. Nothing a bit of fresh air can't solve. Feeling sick? Get a bit of fresh air. Worried about exams? Go for a walk. Emotionally devastated because Julie, the love of your life, is now going out with Gordon? Get a bit of fresh air. Take deep breaths. <gasps> She'll soon feel better. But in the more formal atmosphere of London, James's down-to-earth bonhomie all jarred a bit. And there's no doubt he burned the candle at both hands and didn't run the most glittering of courts. I'm told he didn't masticate his food properly and drank like a fish. And things could get out of hand. So when his wife's relatives visited from Denmark in 1606 to the country house at Tibbald's, which he'd swapped out from the Cecils, the reception degenerated into a drunken shambles. A French observer at the Scottish court called Fontenay found James's manners rude and very uncivil, both in speaking, eating, clothes, games and conversation in the company of women, which is a reasonably comprehensive list. All of this did have a positive side in personal relationships with some courtiers, but James did not have that Tudor gift of emanating magnificence and power. And the Venetian ambassador noted that he did not caress the people, nor make them that good cheer that the late queen did, whereby she won their love. Instead, he seemed to regard them, according to said ambassador, with contempt and d dislike. When James went hunting, obviously the locals turned out to see God's anointed pass by, and James absolutely hated it, and wished they'd all just buzz off, wishing that he could make an inhibition that while he hunted his deer, the people should not hunt him. So I hate to sound like a suck-up, but you can imagine how differently Queen Liz would have dealt with the flock of admirers. So, it's an odd contrast, really. James had the hail-fellow-well-met touch with his courtiers, but he did not have the common touch. 
It also gives an insight into James's attitude to the nobility, with whom he obviously felt most comfortable. As we'll hear, James had a turbulent upbringing as a lad, with factional infighting and of course the small matter of his mum being deposed. And therefore, he had a determination to bring his nobility strictly under the control of the monarch, to make sure everyone knew exactly who was at the top of the divinely ordained pyramid. But, don't for a moment misconstrue that hatred of political chaos and disorder for a dislike of his nobility. He saw them very much as the natural rulers of society and was at pains to maintain them in their proper dignity, often a very considerable financial cost to the state. Anthony Weldon's accusation that James was the wisest fool in Christendom was clever because it undermined James's very obvious love of learning and his exceptional breadth of knowledge and even his considerable writing talent. He is one of very few monarchs with a series of publications to his name, including poetry. Once upon a time, his writings were sneered at, but the very highly regarded historian Jenny Wormold comprehensively saved him from that fate. Many of his writings give a fascinating insight into his politics, the Basilican Doran, for example, a manier on kingship for his heir Henry, and the true law of free monarchy. He had a fascination for witchcraft and wrote a book on the topic called Demonology, and then left a collection of poems. There is no doubt he was a scholar and intelligent with it. Fontenay again remarked that as a younger man, James grasps and understands quickly, judges carefully and with reasonable discourses, and that he was learned in many languages, sciences and affairs of state. As to whether or not all this intelligence and learning made him wise, well, I shall let you be the judge in the fullness of time, though I would like to pass on the eternal truth told to me by Brummie's favourite artist and philosopher, Rob Halford of Judas Priest, at some volume, I have to say, that you don't have to be old to be wise. Great insight. I have never forgotten it. As to his oratorical skills, well, the jury's out a bit. Clearly, James liked communicating his knowledge and philosophy and talking. At parliaments, for example, he would speak frequently for an hour or more and picked up some compliments along the way. Equally, others rather preferred his son Charles, who struggled with a stammer as a youth and therefore kept things short, and brevity is the soul of wit, according to the bard anyway. So, I have a couple more observations to make on the king's character. One very startling one was his absolute passion for favourites, for male favourites in particular. His career is strewn with them from an early age, starting with Esme Stuart, the Earl of Lennox, in his youth, to Robert Carr, the Earl of Somerset in the early 17th century, and the magnificent peacock that was George Villiers, a.k.a. the Duke of Buckingham. The impact this has on politics is a thing, which I will let unfold, but just as a super summary, far from a good thing really, but not as bad as Piers Gaveston or the Dispensers, if you remember the impact they made. But James was similarly absolutely unreserved about his admiration and his love for them. When Esme Stuart fell foul of the Scottish concerns about his religion and was dispatched back to France, the young James was gutted, and he wrote a poem about a phoenix, as lovers do. One commentator in England noted that James chose his favourites 
on the basis of their looks, and that the love the king showed was as amorously conveyed as if he had mistaken their sex and thought them ladies. Another, John Oglander, wrote that James loved young men, his favourites, better than women, loving them beyond the love of men for women, and that he'd never seen any fond husband make so much or so great dalliances over his beautiful spouse. Well, the more fault husbands, hmm? James caressed his favourites in public, he kissed them, wrote love letters, shared his bed with them. And so we come to the same question we've had for a few of England's monarchs. Was James homosexual? And if so, were these relationships physically realised? And yet again, we are short on definitive evidence. On the one hand, James would have publicly agreed that sodomy was an offence. Indeed, he described it as thus in the Basilican Doron, that it was a crime. Ye are bound in conscience never to forgive. And his wife, Anna Denmark, conceived seven children, and for a good period of his life, James was perfectly usurious, though less so in later years. On the other hand, there is no doubt that the emotions James felt towards Esme, Carr and Villiers were deep, powerful and physical, and it is a very short step to imagine that the relationships became fully physical. But it is, of course, impossible to be definitive. The last point before coming to the historiography of the reign is the accusation by Weldon that James was a coward. Now, once again, it's a clever accusation, because on the surface, it has a sheen of believability. There comes a stage when James's kingdoms are hot for him to pick up the musket as a Protestant champion. But James deserves great credit, I think, in being genuinely concerned to avoid violence, if at all possible. He would cast himself in the role of peacemaker at the start of the Thirty Years' War, he also clearly thought that the idea of killing people for their religion was a sign of failure and barbaric. He said that persecution could never lead to conviction, and only 19 to 25 priests were to be executed in his reign. Now, James is distressingly inconsistent. So this is the man who transported the Borders Graham clan into Ireland, who established the Ulster plantations. He allows them almost indiscriminate use of martial law in Ireland. He's quite capable of violence and conflict, but he rather stands out on the right side of the line at a time of quite outstanding levels of violence in Europe at the time. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Right. Well, it's time to talk about the historiography of James. How has history treated the lad? As do all scholars of renown, we must turn first to Seller and Yeatman, who have certainly swallowed the Weldon line, I have to tell you, in their judicious and carefully considered view. 1066 and all that records that James I slobbered at the mouth and had favourites. He was therefore a bad king. He had, however, a very logical and tidy mind, and one of the first things he did 
was to have Sir Walter Raleigh executed for being left over from the previous reign. The other notable things the sacred text considers worth mentioning from the reign were the planting of Scots back into Ireland, the gunpowder plot, since the loyal Guy Fawkes wanted to help James achieve his formula of naught bishops and naught king, so tried to blow both up. And then they mention a ship called the Mayfly, which I think just about covers it. Then there's the Ladybird Kings and Queens of England, and I have to say that, oops, there's old Weldon again. James was never a popular king. He was ungainly and slovenly in appearance, and untrustworthy and deceitful. He believed that a king could do no wrong, and his persecution of the Catholics resulted in many plots being formed against him. Well, good golly, Miss Molly, that is a hatchet job and a half. No wonder the children of 1968 kept trying to reenact the gunpowder plotting chemistry lessons. Lawrence Dugard Peach would very clearly have been right alongside V for Vendetta trying to blow up Parliament if he could. Then let's have Jane Austen, shall we? Who was much more positive, actually. Yet considered on the whole, I cannot help liking him, which is nice. Followed, though, by something of a severe criticism of Catholicism. As I am myself partial to the Roman Catholic religion, it is with infinite regret that I am obliged to say that in this reign the Roman Catholics of England did not behave like gentlemen to the Protestants. Strong words indeed, Mr Darcy. Strong words indeed. Possibly a case of the pot calling the kettle black, but don't quote me on that, and maybe Jane's tongue was firmly in her cheek, where it most often was. Among less serious commentators, there is a general theme to which we will return. That James VI was a super successful monarch, but that James I was rubbish, a dichotomy which Jenny Wormold put down to English anti-Scottish prejudice. Tusk, those English, eh? Such a bad lot. You wouldn't find a Scot saying a bad thing about the English. And weak historians put down to James's inability to deal with the English Parliament. I suppose, in essence, it's a selection problem. Do you pick for form or pick for current performance? However, the Scottish-English dichotomy has become a little less severe in historical thinking. The Scots, beginning to see in James the seeds of later trouble, and the English recognising the intractable problems he faced and how he coped with them. In the immediate aftermath of his death, the reviews were actually initially positive. James's wit and repartee were gathered into a text of his sayings. The Archbishop of St Andrews, John Spottiswood, wrote positively of his bishop-loving king. But quite soon, traditions on both sides of the borders began to apply a corrosive to the gleaming metal posts of the edifice that was James's reputation. In Scotland, the Presbyterians rapidly had to reinvent history in their own image, which required that the most perfect Scottish Kirk had never liked or wanted bishops. It was only James that had forced them on the poor groaning Scottish people. In England, an explanation had to be sought as to why everything had gone so pear-shaped and gone to civil war, and having a lazy and degenerate king helped. Although an alternative tradition survived in England too, Clarendon instead pointed for a cause to the civil wars as 
a heedless younger generation, bored with tranquillity, which as a reason for plunging all three kingdoms into civil war would seem, well, shallow, to be honest. For Clarendon, James's reign, and indeed Charles's, had brought uninterrupted pleasures and plenty. But from there, Scottish historians tended to concentrate on James's struggles with his aristocracy, and in England, his struggles with Parliament, and for both, James's sexuality became a moral problem. The Whig historians got involved in the 19th century, of course, and in 1863, S.R. Gardiner gave James some brownie points as an able and intelligent man, shrewd, often exercising good judgment, but making a series of howlers, misjudging Spain's diplomacy, infatuation with his favourites, his financial failings and his shortcomings in understanding and managing the English Parliament. James had an exalted view of royal supremacy, which flew in the face of history's inevitable march, as far as the Whigs were concerned, towards British parliamentary democracy where perfection was to be achieved. In the 20th century, in 1956, came the first modern biography by D. H. Wilson, and it's a study that seems itself to astonish other historians rather than its subject, James. The Oxford Database of National Biography remarks that every page proclaimed its author's increasing hatred for his subject. It is Weldon once more who rules, a portrait of the disgusting, cowardly pedant with a conceit which far outweighed his real ability. This, however, was the low-tide mark of history. After that, we hit a bit more of the flood tide, with a resurgence of respect for the man and his talents. Historians began to note a few things about James's reign. They noted that although James had all the financial rectitude of a trader on the London Stock Exchange or Wall Street, or maybe of Del Boy on the Peckham Market, his failure to raise sufficient taxation meant his subjects were considerably more prosperous. They also pointed out that possibly, just maybe, perhaps, it was a good thing that unlike most of the Western European powers, and despite pressures from his subjects, James did not embroil his country in a ruinous war that resulted in vast expense and the death of millions. Possibly, just possibly, that was a good decision. Also, on James's exalted view of monarchical powers, which the Whigs had scorned so much, well, it was recognised that many of James's contemporaries shared his views. They were by no means so novel as the Whigs claimed. Meanwhile, Scottish historians such as Gordon Donaldson made the point that James had become king at the princely age. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Of one, and after years of factional infighting, could have become a cipher, a mere nothing. And yet, in fact, he re established the prestige and effectiveness of the monarchy, so much so that he was able to become an absentee and rule Scotland, as James himself boasted, by the pen alone. And meanwhile, James the writer was rescued by Jenny Wermold, as we've heard, who unpicked the quality of his works and pointed out that the problems of dealing with an English parliament, way more ponderous than the nimble Scottish version, would have given anyone problems. There then came a series of works to the current day, which looked at James's reign in a rather different way, as an interrelated and interacting history of three kingdoms. The United Kingdom of England and Wales, Scotland and Ireland, the Atlantic Archipelago. This certainly brought a lot of light to the Civil War era, but equally, although James failed in his attempt to create one united Britain, he set in train a process that would lead to a unified British kingdom that would last until the end of the 19th century, and then again to the start of the 21st century. The most recent works by Pauline Crofts and Tim Harris take a sort of Janus-like approach. On the one hand, They praise James for his skilful handling of very difficult and intractable problems, keeping the lid on the boiling pot of English religion, avoiding any serious rebellions in Ireland, ruling Scotland through some talented managers, and keeping us all out of the Thirty Years' War. But while giving with the Janus face of pleasure, they turn to the Janus face of terror, and note that although he managed to sit on the pot and keep the lid on, he didn't really resolve the basic problems. They don't quite say that the civil wars were the result of this, but the implication is that unless there was an equally or more skilled successor, the pot would definitely boil over eventually anyway, and therefore he passed something of a hospital ball to his lad. Michael Lynch took a similar approach in Scotland, while continuing the general praise for the way that James managed the first half of his reign in Scotland, he points out that the five articles of Perth and James's religious policy primed the gun which would go off in Charles's face. Now look, this is a slightly short episode, but this seems far too good a place to stop. So although this is not at the bottom and it's not at the top, yet this is the step where we must stop. On our way up the stairs, there is an absolute blinder of a topic we've not yet covered, which is of course James's view of kingship, and we'll cover that next time through James's kingly education and achievement in Scotland from 1567 to 1603, and what that meant for the king that would come south and pick up Elizabeth's crown. Enjoy Series 7 then, everyone, and don't forget to pick up those Atagallop episodes from time to time. It only remains for me now to thank you all for your attention, for your comments and messages to the website, email and the Facebook group, and to thank my favourite people of all, the History of England members, past and present. Thank you. So, good luck everyone, and have a great week. 